Um, why don't we actually start with that then? This was in your presentation, I guess. These are just a couple of the images that referred to some of the events and things. That's right. You know, the historical pieces. Sure, yeah. Yeah, so, um, and probably all of you, well, I don't know, most of you, um, maybe not the really young people, but would recognize some of these folks. Well, everybody's going to recognize somebody, I guess, up there. But um, Anita Bryant, the woman up there who's praying with the Save Our Children, she was, uh, she's still living, but she was very, very important in the 19. 19- 70s uh, for um, an anti-homosexuality campaign that was actually extremely successful, but also spawned uh, a very strong opposition to her. So that's that's who that is. And then some of these folks are folks who uh, Bishop Eddie Long at the top left, who kind of his career ended uh, somewhat sadly in a sex scandal, and then he uh, died a year or two ago. Anita Hill, of course, that's her taking the oath before uh, the hearings with Clarence Thomas. Uh, Francis Kissling is a Catholic um, pro-choice activist who started an organization called Catholics for Choice, so a kind of unusual figure that way and interesting. Uh, this is Bishop Jean Robinson here, who I mentioned, first gay Episcopal bishop, uh, Paula Jones. This is a, just an anti-abortion protest. Um, this is a, just a film still from uh, Birth of a Nation, which, among other things, stoked a lot of fear around interracial uh, marriage. Um, that's Bill Clinton uh, saying, I did not have sex <laughs> with that woman. Do you remember that? Well, it wasn't the phrase sexual relations? Uh, yeah, sexual yeah. relations, thank you, yes. Be- and that's Margaret Sanger, the birth control activist over there. So, um, you know, and a couple more scattered. So, uh, happy to talk about any of those folks. All right. So, first of all, I think part of the thing for me when I was reading your book is that there's a... I mean, all of us at every particular age, and you know, we get so myopic in this is what's happening here. And so to have a broad scope of history is a really informative perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess one of my first questions is, how has having a broad scope of that history informed just your personal journey? Mm-hmm. Um, I think when we, when we think about the myopic, well, here's what's going on now, and we are living out the results of this uh, huge separated tension. So we have... we. Like, I, I know, I mean, I love my congregation, and we hear that, can you believe what they just published, right? Mm-hmm. And then, so they publish this, and then all of a sudden that gets excited, and then we get excited, and everybody's, <laughs> probably not the best terminology, exciting one another uh-huh. um, with some of these pieces of the puzzle. It feels to me like this historical perspective, and even just the way you present, th- present this, has really given you, given you a tempered way of approaching it, giving you a very thoughtful grounded perspective, still very uh, much principled, Mm -hmm. but not living in the um, excitement of reaction. So I'm just kind of curious if you can speak to that. Because one of the things that I loved about reading your book, and I think a thing that's really important for our day and age is that we just are not listening to one another anymore. The conversations are so vitriolic, so contemptuous, Mm -hmm. and we just can't even have a conversation anymore. And what you present in your book, as well as here, is a very grounded response. Again, still very principled, but very grounded. So I'd love for you to thank share you. a little bit more about that. Well, thank you. I, yeah, I think that when I started this project, and this project, by the way, took me about 10 years, so that's the problem with a broad historical narrative. Mm. Um, but I was really committed to trying to understand 
all different perspectives on this. Now, obviously, my own stance is obvious. You, you, you all hear that. Uh, but I think, actually, the book is more probably um, the tone is somewhat more measured, only because I really genuinely wanted to understand what are these fears about, you know, and what are these different positions uh, that people hold about. And, you know, I did, there were moments when I got angry during the research because I could see deception, people lying, you know, and, and people stoking all kinds of fears about things they knew weren't true. And, you know, that made me crazy because I was watching religious leaders do this in some of the sources. But on the whole, I, I really did come to have a great deal of respect across the board. And it just made me sad that these issues have been so divisive yeah. and that it's so rare for people to just sit down and try to talk about them. Yeah. So one of the fundamental ethical principles from this is actually sit down and listen, yes. learn, have a conversation with somebody who believes something radically different from you, even when it's, even when it's on an issue that's so near and dear to your own Heart. Absolutely. You know, um, there's a technique in marriage counseling of listening and, and being required to listen to the other person with a timer on for a certain amount of time. And then once you've heard what that person has to say, you say it back to them without judging. And I forget what the other things are, but you're supposed to. And there is something transformative about that, about feeling heard by someone else. And even we might not agree but if I really feel like you understand me, you know, or you understand my point, I, I do think that's transformative yeah. and something we ought to have better techniques for doing on all kinds of issues. You mentioned it towards the end, which really struck me, that you seem to draw a connection between the, um, you, you mentioned hookup culture mm -hmm. and maybe um, much more free expression and do whatever the heck you want mm -hmm. um, from a sexual perspective as connected with this very rigid conservative. I want to make sure that I heard you correctly and maybe clarify. It seemed that th this kind of um, free expression is in response and reaction to a very, and I love what you said, a distorted view of sexuality mm -hmm. that was promulgated primarily by a very conservative or traditionalist view. Is that, yeah. did I hear you correctly in that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, in part, I think it's a reaction against the old morality and, and a factor of us not having better alternatives in the middle. So it's kind of like, you know, the pendulum swung from one end to the other for, for certain, you know, folks. I, I don't mean to condemn the whole culture this way, but this is why I think a church like yours having these conversations and really trying to come up with, well, what should we teach our children? You know, how, how should these things get taught in the schools? You know, what do we as Christians, as Americans how are we thinking about those things? So I guess I, it's hard for me not to conclude, therefore, mm -hmm. that we, meaning the church, Christianity, whatever American expression of Christianity um, many of us have grew, grown up in and, and many of us probably have taught for many years, we, we actually are the cause. I mean, like mm -hmm. we're a primary cause. Like we are fighting against the very thing, it feels like to me, that we are actually perpetuating by holding particular stances. So like if I, if I grew up in a purity culture of the 1980s and 90s where it's true love weights and this is the only thing and then you're, of course, anti-feminism, you're anti-LGBT, you're anti-all of these things, um, it, 
because there is such an exacerbated sense of conflict, then if that's how you see it, then I'm going to see it this other way. We are actually creating the very thing that we're fighting against. Yeah. Is, I, that, is I, that a fair assessment? I think it is, honestly. Uh, you know, I think about my own experience was my mother, you know, telling me about sex and then saying, you can't have sex until you're married. It's a sin. And I don't want to hear anything about it, basically, was the message. And that was like our last conversation. And then, you know, I, so when I became a teenager... Or when I started dating, I had no one to talk to right. that I could trust. And, and I think, you know, one thing that I did differently with my kids, rightly or wrongly, is I said, you can come to me with anything, you know, right. and I'm going to try to hear you. And I can't promise you I'm going to have the perfect reaction. <laughs> but I want you to come to me because I, I didn't like not being able to talk to my mother. So I think sometimes that strictness and the sort of, you know, sense of that really did create a culture of kids rebelling and, and not having anything else to fall back right. on. So um, this was actually one of the text messages that came in, one of the questions that I had. Um, I would love for you to share even more what you actually teach your children. <laughs> and, and obviously, um, you know, with, with, with discretion, but I think there's many of us who are really um, curious, what, what do you say about healthy relationships if... The, the old, I shouldn't say the old, the, the traditional way of forming relationships, which is, you know, don't, sex is dirty and evil and sinful and you should save it for the person you love and marry, right? Um, rather than that kind of construct, um, what actually is a healthy construct of sexual expression that we, like, we want to we raise our kids to not have to fight loneliness and right. despair and dysfunction and all those things, which... So it seems like the, you have these two, uh, two possible ways. You stick with a very traditional view of Christian ethics or you be permissive. So what's that yeah. middle or third way that, oh. and if you wouldn't mind being a little bit more personal because I, you're living it yeah. and you've studied this and we would really love to hear. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a tough one and this is going on the website too. Um, <laughs> so thanks Kevin. Yeah. Um, we, we can block it from your kids. Okay. You yeah, we'll just put, put some you know, sort of parental I control. think that what my husband and I tried to emphasize had more to do with how you treat other human beings. Because I, I did feel like when you focus completely on what's right and what's wrong and here are the don'ts, you know, and all the don'ts. To me, you know, just knowing teenagers, they're going to rebel against that. A lot of them are, you know. And so what I really, I mean, they knew how we felt about these things, but also I was really mostly about how you treat other people and how you have self-respect for yourself and you don't fall into something because someone else, you know, wants that. And that's my concern about the hookup culture, which you can tell I'm a little obsessed with this, is that I find it very coercive for, for girls. I think girls are not making choices always. And that there is this weird sense that we've gone from, there's still this, almost this sense that, um, you know, girls should just, uh, there's no reason to say no, so why should they say no? And I'm not talking about my own daughter in this case, but just everything I've learned through her about this. Um, so I find that, to me, that is not so much a problem of sexual morality. I mean, it is that, but 
it, for me, it's far more a problem of interacting, interpersonal relationships and lack of respect mm-hmm. and dignity and lack of self-respect. So in a way, to me, those core issues um, are probably where I focus more of my energy than on behavior. So, okay, so to push a little further, I mean, would you actually, uh, what, let's say your daughter comes to you and says, hey, mom, is it okay? Would you, what would you say? <laughs> I mean, sorry, if, if I'm pushing too no, hard, I want to... No, 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 no. But, I mean, this is kind of... I, I think part of the reason is because that phraseology, for many of us, is so ingrained. Like, yeah. to have sex before marriage is a sin, it's wrong, and it's, um, it, it's kind of blanketed with that shame. Right. And if we're trying to move towards a more healthy sexual ethic that includes these things like human dignity and mutuality of, of, uh, of decision and, and things like that, um, I, I think... There's still like this impulse to want to say, but there's there is still a morality and an ethic yeah. that exists that we should try to adhere to, and so do we just leave it in um, some sort of subjective realm? Right. Um, do do we simply just say, well, the Bible doesn't talk about it, therefore, you know, that's between you and your God, and and with the support of us as your parents, I, you know. Well, I, and here's where I might be more liberal than, you know, a lot of people here, I realize, is that, you know, I, I don't believe that sex before marriage is inherently sinful. Uh, I, just, I just don't. And so some of those things have not bothered me mm-hmm. so much. Now, I'm concerned about, you know, age, you know, high school, kids getting hurt before they know what they're doing, all those sorts of things. But do I think it's a bigger moral issue to treat other people with respect and dignity and to understand historical racism and historical oppression and all these things? Yes, I do. To me, those are more important than sexual morality. And so an overemphasis of the one um, in comparison to these others. So I guess that's maybe not a great answer, but my my answer probably is that I am am more liberal on those things. Yeah. But I worry about them getting hurt, and I worry about them hurting other people. Well, it's actually a great answer because, um, I mean, you said it in your talk that there are, like, why is there is this uh, Christian obsession over this when there could be an obsession over much uh, more graver issues such as poverty mm-hmm. and injustice and child separation and all these mm-hmm. other things. Um, so that's actually a, a really great answer. I mean, you're, you're teaching your, your child in some senses that, yes, your, your sexual identity um, and integrity is important, um, but it's not, uh, I mean, and preserve that and protect that and, we, and care for that. Um, but when it comes to Christian ethics, there's a whole scope of Christian ethics. And I think that's part yeah. of what your work does, is it opens up this realm, uh, pulling away from just purely focusing on the sexual aspect of Christian morality to realize that morality, Christian morality, is about humanity. Exactly. Uh, it's about exactly. something much bigger than that. Exactly. I mean, I feel like the, what I grew up with was the, the word morality just equal, had to, only to do with sex. Right. Well, my gosh. I mean, that's, that's an important part of life, but it's only one part of life. Right. It didn't have to do with justice and, and these other things. So you, you said it beautifully. I, I completely agree with what you just said. Uh, uh, I get the sense um, from reading your book and hearing you talk that uh, sex and, and sexual issues is really just a proxy for other things, which is fear and power. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question is a little bit of a twofold one. It feels as if we should... <laughs> We should lean liberal. We should lean more 
open and capacious, and we should lean more towards welcome and, um, and embrace that it, it's so hard for me, maybe because I lean in that way um, personally, but I, I'm trying to get a, a grounded sense. If the issue really is fear, which leads then to conservatism and holding power, and I don't want power taken away from me, mm-hmm. it feels like the only solution to that is to actually open up those avenues of power, spread power to a wide, diverse a group of people, both gender and mm-hmm. eth- ethnically, um, because that's the way to solve those issues of fear. And when you embrace somebody who is different, if you have a woman in a position of power that is equal to a, a man, then that assuages some of those fears that you have, or at least keeps those fears in check. So mm-hmm. um, it's hard not to conclude um, and to feel like that really is a better way forward. Mm-hmm. Am I right? Am I wrong? What would be the counter to that? Because at the same time, the the slippery slope arg- argument sure. is the other side. Well, yeah, the slippery slope argument is on the other side, and you know, I think. Uh, but but I'm not going to defend the conservative side of that. I, I share your sense of you know. To me, we need to be more inclusive, not less, and kinder, and more compassionate, and more justice oriented, not less. And I so and to me those things do tend to go with the being the progressive more liberal side. I don't necessarily think they have to. This is why I started out by mentioning my parents because my mother was such an interesting case and still is of a devout Christian, Bible believing Christian, you know, conservative theologically, and absolutely liberal and open in her politics. She was sort of I compare her to like the Jimmy Carter type of Christian. And those used to be very common, you know, and they exist. But over the years, those two things have been harder to reconcile so that theological conservatism has seemed to go much more with political conservatism. But it doesn't have to, Mm -hmm. you know. So I think one can say I am going to be open and loving and inclusive in my politics and I believe in the Bible, yeah. and I want to follow Jesus, right? I, those things can go together, and, and to me, they should. You're asking the impossible. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to ask one more question. I would love for a couple of you to join, uh, step up to the microphone and ask a couple questions. So I'll ask one more, and then we'll take some questions from you all. So go ahead and come on up while I ask this last one. Um, so recently in, uh, our, in news, we have uh, Bill Hybels' uh, scandal mm-hmm. from Willow Creek. Yeah. And then, of course, this um, such disturbing report coming out of the Catholic diocese in, in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, and these are just heartbreaking, right? This, yeah. It feels as if Christianity um, has been suffering these kinds of abuses for a long time, obviously. Mm-hmm. And these are things that we're going to have to reckon with and deal with. I would just be curious, your comments, how do you reflect upon those things? How do you respond to those news reports, and, you know, I, uh, I, I'm just sad to say that this won't be the last time we're going to hear reports like that. You know, this is just such a, it's disheartening to, to just realize that. But given, uh, you know, the state of Willow Creek as one of the most influential evangelical churches in, in the world, arguably, and then, of course, the Catholic Church and, and their abuses, I would be curious your comments. How do you process it as an historian, given 
the history that you've had and yeah. and uh, yeah or well, hel and help us I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I thank you for that great question. I mean, it is as painful for me as a historian as it is I think for anyone. I mean, I thought nothing could shock me anymore about the Catholic sex abuse scandal and then I started reading that Pennsylvania report and I I couldn't keep going. Yeah. I had to stop. Uh, it was just really so horrific. And, um, you know, I had dinner. I was at a dinner party last night with a really wonderful Catholic priest in St. Louis, and we were talking about it. And because he has spoken in his congregation about it, and he said, you know, my view is that the Catholic Church, the hierarchy has not let us grow out of adolescence, and that this is a part of it. And this is a Catholic priest saying this that he feels like there has just been, you know, this shutting down and silencing and kind of, you know, um, and, and that that top-down authority ha is, is in part to blame for this. Now, a lot of Protestants might think that. I was really interested to hear that coming from a, a Catholic priest. But it is horrifying, and the lack of accountability, and, and you know, it is, it's clear it's a systemic problem. And I think we're going to keep hearing those reports, unfortunately, all across the country and uh, other parts of the world. The Hybels case, of course, is not nearly as horrible as, uh, in my view, as the child sexual uh, abuse. However, it's horrible in its own right. And these kinds of abuses that are happening among Christian pastors. I mean, that one shocked me. And, um, you know, all of these cases do also point you know, frankly, to what it's hard not to see the hypocrisy. You know, this is just hypocrisy in some way. And um, I remember, you know, uh, that old saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I just sometimes think, um, don't get corrupt, Kevin, as a pastor, because, you know, sometimes, I, you know, I, I just think a lot of things went to Heibel's head, is what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And he thought he could do these things and still be the good Christian leader. And I, I mean, there's almost a cognitive dissonance, I think, in people's minds. Yeah. Um, so that's about all I can say. Marcus, please. Hi. Hi. I got two questions. Um, one is, um, in your research, or as you've gone about it, what has, your, what has kind of been the resistance been in regards to technology? Because um, from my understanding and from what I've read, well, really, pornography kind of helps push uh, technology along hmm. and uh, moving faster than maybe like the knowledge of when it uh, when it's discovered. You know, mm -hmm. i.e., people's phones, internet pornography, and stuff like that. And you know, a thirteen-year-old probably has better yeah. access to the technology than their parents. So, what has that role kind of been historically played within the like the resistance mm -hmm. um, to? To, you know, as far as progressive progression mm -hmm. goes. Mm -hmm. And then the other question is, is that often what was lost in these conversations is the enjoyment of sex. Mm -hmm. Like the enjoyment of sex. And the, the question is, is that how do you approach the conversation that sex is supposed to be enjoyed? Mm -hmm. You know, especially at, um, even from a young age where we're teaching that it's good. There's don't, 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 don't. But well, it should be enjoyed. And our bodies do these wonderful things that, that God has ordained. Mm -hmm. So um, hopefully, well, I don't know if it's ordained, but basically <laughs> yeah. I, I like sex. I think a lot of other people like sex. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, no, I mean, no. Anyway. I got it. Yeah. Okay, he, cool. He's right. one of our pastors. By <laughs> okay. Okay. Good. <laughs> 
Um, thank you. Yeah. Well, the technology question is really an interesting one, and I have to confess that I didn't do a lot with that in the book. I think, um, you know, but it was very interesting to see to look at technology over time. So I mentioned that I looked at. Um, obscenity laws and censorship and you know what you see happening is as the film when the film industry was first created there were no regulations at all and all kinds of things went on in those early films and then of course you know the the kind of uh curtain came down on that and an organization that was actually founded by Catholics is the organization that created the rating system that we still have you know i mean it's evolved over time so technology generally and the kind of fight over uh, ways that technology might make sex more visible, that has been going on for a century. And you're absolutely right that Internet pornography is just a minefield. And any of us who have kids, I don't even know how you regulate it anymore, right? I mean, I just don't think I can. So it's a, it's a great question, and I don't have a great answer, unfortunately, for it. But I see it as a very important point. And on your second point, absolutely, you know, what, what your second point about the pleasure of sex makes me think about is partly one of the justifications for sex ed programs has been to, you know, teach kids not to be scared of sex eventually. I mean, to say what you just said, because there was a sense that religious uh, parents oftentimes used to just scare their kids to death and, and make them very frightened. Um, so I think there have been attempts to instill that. But then the other side is afraid that, it, well, if you tell them it's pleasurable, they're all going to go, you know, you can't stop, you can't put the brakes on. So it's a, so it's, I, th I, so I see it as a real tension within, among Christians trying to, you know, raise their kids and teach them and all that. So thank you. Uh, your name and your question, please. My name is Justin. I'm an out-of-town visitor, um, which will provide a little bit more context for my question. Um, uh, thanks for your talk as well. It was, it was fascinating. I'm going to buy the book and, and read it soon. Oh, thank um, you. So I grew up in a conservative, fundamentalist, evangelical affiliate. We we liked being outside of evangelical. We were our own thing, and we were the only one that's that's uh, that were right. So, um, <laughs> as I'm sure other people have experienced here. Um, probably the reason this church exists. Um, anyway, <laughs> so I, I have uh, I graduated from Stanford a couple years ago and am now in a place where I can sort of figure out what my new church community is going to be. Unfortunately, they're not spark churches everywhere. Mm -hmm. I'm in Austin now. Um, and I have, I have uh, really grown fond of the Anglican slash Episcopal mm -hmm. um, expression of faith. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so the first question... Um, um, you said that you found your way into the Episcopal Church, and I'm assuming that you were there in the early 2000s when this split over, mm -hmm. um, you know, ordination of an LGBTQ yep. um, person happened. So I, I'm, I'm curious about, I've been visiting both types of churches and have been like pointedly asking them what they think about the other group mm -hmm. and have been refreshed in some cases to hear even people from the Anglican tradition not putting blanket statements over Episcopalians. Mm. And obviously, I think Episcopalians do a good job of not doing that, or mm -hmm. more likely not do that. So my question was, um, one, sort of what was your personal experience during that split? Um, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that you probably had friends and maybe even family that you worshipped with that became part of you know, an ACNA movement um, mm -hmm. away from that. And then, so the second question is related to that, because most of the Anglicans that I've talked to have said that the you know the ordination of um, 
of a, of a gay bishop, they thought was indicative of a shift from identity being primarily rooted in their spiritual identity or religious faith to being one which is rooted in their sexual identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've noticed this is a trend over and over again, including Anglican pastors saying this. Um, so so my, the second question is, in your experience with, with what happened there and in, and in your knowledge of, of this historical trend and this, you know, this combat that's happening, um, how, how should we think about a healthy balance as Christians between our sort of fundamental identity, which is being in Christ, and also recognizing that sexual identity is really important and that yeah. we, for so long, didn't take it seriously enough. Wow, thank you for... Yeah. Would you also mind filling in maybe a little bit of context of what that conflict is? I sure. There might be some who don't are not as Absolutely. familiar with, the, yes. with that particular conflict. So the Episcopal Church has um, essentially had a breakaway movement among really nationally uh, and internationally um, and in the U.S., and it, and it has been over homosexuality first and foremost, as well as the ordination of women, but primarily it's about homosexuality. And so a number of entire congregations have split off into what they're calling ACNA, Anglican Church of North America, and there's a, a, a sort of more um, global body to the Anglican Church. I forget what it's called. But anyway, and it's affiliated with some of the bishops in... Um, uh, Nigeria? Uh, Nigeria, Uganda, and uh, Rwanda. Okay. So, um, so that's, what, that's what he's referring to, and that's happened over recent uh, years. And it, it was, in part, a reaction, I think, to Gene Robinson being um, elected uh, bishop um, in the early 2000s. Or the, in the, was he elected in the night? Now I can't remember. It's in my book. But anyway, I... Um, So, uh, okay, so now you asked me to do that, so now I've forgotten your second question, which I really wanted to get at. Tell me what... So the first was, what was your personal experience in a church that was splitting? I don't know if you had a lot of people leaving or... um, And and then the second was about navigating the balance between Christian identity... Oh, yeah, that's what... Okay. Well, so to answer your first question, honestly, I think that the congregation that I was in was was very cohesive. They were very um, pro-LGBTQ, very pro-Gene Robinson. So I do know some Episcopalians who left, but they, they weren't so much in my uh, circle. I mean, it was a very just heartbreaking kind of event. But I think people probably that I was closest to in the church were just kind of had a conviction that they were, you know, they were on the right side. And if those people wanted to leave, it was tragic. But, you know, we're still the the historic church, rightly or wrongly. So So I didn't really experience that split quite as personally, I think, in that way. Your second question, I want to say I interviewed Gene Robinson for this book, and he blew my mind. And one thing he wants to say is... This is not about his sexual identity. He loves Jesus. He has since he was a young child. And these um, biographies of him all make that very clear. And he fought his homosexuality, you know. Uh, He married a woman and, and and warned her in advance that he had these kind of desires and he was working really hard. And she said, it's okay, we'll make it. And then they wound up divorcing and raising their children together. But, you know, and so he uh, then was partnered um, with a man. 
So, but he says, you know, his Christian faith absolutely came first. And he has, I think he has felt wounded by the sense that, um, that somehow sexuality comes ahead of spirituality or that that's the assumption. And so, and, and I find his story compelling in that way. I really think that, you know, for him, sexuality is, uh, you know, an, I don't, I don't want to say an accident, but something that, you know, what's formative for him and why he wanted to be a bishop was his faith, you know, really. So I don't know. Does that yeah, answer? I, I, I'll read more about it. Yeah, okay, great. Yeah, thanks for your great questions. Well, yeah. if, I, if I can add to that, I mean, I, I really appreciate the question. It yeah. feels as if that whole claim that by pushing this, you are making your sexual identity now a prime, primary to your spiritual identity is really a claim from the outside. It's a criticism, yeah. right, of, of the movement. Because, uh, you know, I followed the Gene Robinson story too, and it's like, I don't know any, I don't know anybody, uh, LGBT or straight, that says my sexual identity is my primary identity, right? right? right. And, like uh, the right. LGBT friends and, and congregants that we have here, uh, they don't identify as gay as their primary, and I'm trying to push this. It's That's like, right. look, I, I love Jesus, and I work at this place, and I happen love, to be gay. I love football, and I happen to also be gay. It's just like, so it, it feels like, and I'm. I would be curious if you can substantiate this, that that claim of that argument is really a critique from the outside. I, I'm really glad you said that because I do see it that way too. You know, there's an old uh, sort of. Um, uh, again, a fear-mongering tactic talking about the gay agenda. So Anita Bryant used that a lot. Other uh, Christian leaders have used that as if, you know, homosexuals are pushing an agenda and that that's their primary goal, you know. And and I completely agree with you that I think if it's an issue, it's because... It was an issue for the for people on the other side right, right. who thought that this was sinful and should be rooted out. So yeah. I appreciate your point. Emily? Mm-hmm. Hello, I'm Emily. Um, I have a little bit more of a personal question for you, so take it as you will. Sure. Um, I'm curious how this research has affected your personal faith, um, mm-hmm. both historically and presently. So I, you said that you had grown up in it's what sounded like a little bit more conservative traditional home, um, that you had gone through denominations similarly. When you started researching these questions of sex and sexuality and how that looks like historically, um, I found that sometimes those are questions that people don't react positively to mm-hmm. for fear or for whatever reason. Did you find that that uh, caused some strife with your relationship in with the church, with God, with your family, um, or not, mm-hmm. hopefully not. But I'm curious about your walk and navigation with that. Thank you. Yeah, I'm very close to my parents, even though I'm very different from them, I think, religiously. Um, I would have to say, as uh, I was talking to someone at dinner about this, that I guess I could describe myself as between churches. So um, I do think that one thing it did do, I, I did get mad over and over again. I, and I may have said this earlier that partly I got mad because I was watching really deceptive tactics and really things that I thought were just not right. And I was seeing them on the conservative side, frankly. I know there's a both sides, yes, 
for sure. But I mean, I was really seeing some of these things, uh, you know, from Catholic and conservative evangelicals, and it was very frustrating. Um, it did make me, though, I think much more committed, much more aware that this progressive Christian evangelical tradition and Catholic, progressive Catholic, has a long and rich history. And those folks are out there, and they are... I went to the Women's March. They were at the Women's March, you know, not just the Christians, but the Jewish progressives and Muslim uh, women and hijab progressives. And so it was, um, you know, so I feel very committed to that, those people, because I see them as living out the message of Jesus, and that's really their core belief. Um, so frankly, I really like your church. I wish there was a spark church, uh, more spark churches too. I need one. And if you want to plant one in St. Louis, <laughs> thank you. Sarah? So backing up to one of Kevin's original questions or someone here about talking about sex with your own children, I find like I come from also a more progressive church from before I came here. But what I found with my contemporaries is with other people, they're very open and affirming. And then when you raise your own children mm -hmm. and you have to talk about sex with your own children, you kind of see the struggle yeah. of trying to shed the old mindset of how men and women should, you know, what the Bible says about men and women in relationships, what they say about masturbation and sex before marriage and almost even my most liberal parents are kind of like when it comes to own children, it's a gamut of how much they have broken free. So how do you have that conversation with like fellow parents or how do you navigate mm -hmm. that with your children and their Christian or non-Christian friends? Like where does that, what does that conversation look like? That is a fabulous question. Thank you. And the first thing I have to admit is I'm not sure I've talked to any of my friends about what they're teaching their children. Why haven't I? I don't know. I mean, that's I, now I want to, you know, I, I want to like, because I could have used some help, you know. You're absolutely right. And we were talking about this at dinner, actually, that when it, so I had all these preconceived notions. I was going to be, you know, the super progressive mom, you know, with all this stuff. And then I have kids, it's my kids. And I'm like, wait a second, you know. It changes things, right? You don't want them to get hurt. You don't want them to make terrible mistakes. You don't, you know, all kind. you know, sex feels like a minefield. And their culture, you know, you talk about technology, a person who asked me about that, you know, the stuff they're watching that they have access to on Netflix and Amazon and all of this stuff, you know, my daughter had watched two seasons of Girls before I realized what she was doing. And she was like 15. And I was like, what's that show? And my friend was like, you better watch that show. She shouldn't be watching that show. It's like, oh. So I say that to say, it, suddenly I realized that, you know, of course people are afraid, you know, when it comes to teaching their own kids. And I felt a little lost. So I should have been asking my friends how they were uh, teaching their kids. I've got one more. He's 11, so I'll, I'll, I'll do better with him. It's just Thank easy. You. Chastity belt until you're 60. Exactly. That's exactly. it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, we had a question come in, which is oh, primarily theological. Let me ask this, and then we'll get to you, Lucia. Um, how are we to handle the scriptures that discuss same-sex relations? What are the primary... I think this is the key question. What are the primary changes in culture that warrants reconsidering those passage, 
passages, uh, assuming that is what you would recommend. Mm -hmm. And then the second question is, what must the Christian outlook be on the issue of abortion? Oh, boy, yes. (laughs) You didn't want to come up to the mic and ask me that one, eh? Person who ever asked me that question? In 60 seconds or less. That's right. Well, I will be honest with you all uh, that I think the abortion debate has um, you know, it has just taken a took a terrible turn. Um, to me, the the very earliest stages of embryonic life should not garner the kind of passionate emotional attachment that, that we give to it. I genuinely believe that. And when Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973, the vast majority of American Christians, including Protestants, including evangelicals, favored that decision. They had seen women, you know, dying and ill from, you know, botched abortions. They knew that making it illegal wouldn't eliminate abortion. And the head of the Southern Baptist Convention and a number of other Southern Baptist leaders praised the decision and said this should be a decision between a woman and her husband, he said, or a woman and her doctor. That changed over the course of the 1970s, and it was through really the work of Phyllis Schlafly and Jerry Falwell and the kind of Catholic view that abortion is murder became, you know, far more prominent in Protestant evangelical circles. And I just want to tell you all, that was a change. Abortion was not looked at that way prior to about 1976 or 77 in evangelical circles. So to me, that's a very important historical point. Now, do I think that abortion should be always and everywhere, you know, legal for everything? I'm, I'm not, I don't actually. And that's where I get in trouble with the feminists, you know, on this side. So it, it's, it's, you know, to me, we ought to be able to have a rational conversation that might put some limits or at least some partial limits on things, but also say the first, you know, I mean, to me, the first trimester really, really should be fine. After that, let's talk. Or maybe you want to say, okay, eight weeks. Okay, well, we can debate the, the amount. So that's my personal view. I do not see this as murder. And, but if a person sees it as murder, then how can you concede anything on that issue? So I feel like I recognize the other side, but I think at least in Protestant circles, that is a recent theological innovation. I'm sure you might be familiar with Randall Balmer yes. and some of his work. We actually had him here about oh, a, a year ago. Good. Yeah, I and know he, Randy. And he yeah. shared uh, a little bit of the development Ooh. of that within the relig- development of the re- religious right and politics. So it was, yeah. So I really appreciate you saying that because you're confirming, I think, a little bit of what we've been wrestling with already. That's so. right. Oh, homosexuality. Um, I mean, mean, the question is, what are the primary changes in culture that warrants reconsidering those passages? Yeah, I mean, I I guess um, I don't know that I know how to answer that so much as to say that I do think there's a lot in the Bible that everyone kind of takes for granted that, oh, that's cultural. So we don't, you know, polygamy or whatever. Uh, so some cultures do it, some don't, but it, it, you know, Christians don't have to stand or fall on that issue. That, that to me is, is similar to homosexuality. It was not a major issue in the Bible. It comes out of those Levitical laws, which most Christians do not follow, you know, the other, 
uh, laws pertaining to kosher and, you know, those types of things. So the fact that that has been the issue that has had so much emphasis on it, that's what needs explaining uh, to me. Um, rather than, you know, because I, I think there are all kinds of other issues that we, that we don't still think are, are, are um, you know, for today in the Bible. It's very similar to what you were mentioning before. There's a disproportionate focus mm-hmm. on, this, on this particular aspect of morality, uh, almost to the uh, ignoring of other aspects. That's right. So, Lucia, please. Um, thank you. Thank That's you. It's been really interesting. So I'm going to go back to the children and mm-hmm. how to teach them. I call my attention because... I am also from a very traditional conservative, mm-hmm. not necessarily, yeah, okay, Christian Catholic. Uh-huh. I grew up in the Catholic Church. I still love the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. I don't participate at all. I don't believe in what they do much. Mm-hmm. And this thing of the priest really has hurt me. Okay, but moving out of that, and I think because when I moved to California, the cultural shock the Christian cultural shock, the, the, the social cultural shock was pretty mm. hard. Mm-hmm. I think I start my my belief, my beliefs in, in God changing a lot. And then I had a, a terrible situation that even changed my relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And um, what when the the issue with my children is what to tell them. Mm. You know, at that time, in that sense, and in many other areas, I, I started talking to my kids about sex like something normal. Mm-hmm. Because I think that that's part of what people are doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, sex is taboo. So you, you wait for this age to talk about that. You wait for that age. I love when you said that it's about respect of the other people. Mm-hmm. But... One of the emphasis that I did, that I talked to my kids, my kids are adult now, adult, uh, adults, and was the difference between the responsibility of a man and the responsibility of a woman. Mm-hmm. My daughter, I think since very early age, learned that she owns her boy, mm-hmm. and it's only her mm-hmm. that is going to choose. Mm-hmm. And my son learned that, yes, the pastor was saying it's enjoyable, but my son learned that enjoyable means two. Mm-hmm. Two are enjoying, not only one. Mm-hmm. And they were always open with me, maybe too open with me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel your pain, yes. Yeah, but, but I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So my question was, and I think this for the two of us, um, the two of you, is this taboo that still existing and exists in the heads of churches? I don't know about you, but I have to include you because you are the head of the church of seeing sex as something part of life, mm-hmm. natural, mm-hmm. Um, comes from that history that you told us mm-hmm. about this closeness and making sex sinful. Mm-hmm. Because in my opinion, separating sex from sin has been a great response for me. Mm-hmm. It, sin is when it's irresponsible. Mm-hmm. And Talking to my kids about sex, responsibility, risk, as you said, um, and always tell them, I can tell you what are the consequences, but I'm not going to be with you to, to avoid that you're going to have sex. So from now on, please have condoms with you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's how I did it. I think has been healthy. But yes, my preoccupation goes with the church, and this jo- is 
joins with the, the abortion. Yep. In my country, the abortion issue is worse than here now, mm -hmm. okay? And I was arguing with my family, with some of my family, because I am the ship, the black ship, <laughs> and I was telling them, you know, that what bothers me is that I don't see why the government has to play a role in here. I was telling them, it's the church, it's the family that will build those <clears throat> beliefs. So, Lucia, could you sum up what, what's your, I, I heard My a question, question in there. Let's get to that question. And how can this be changed? Yeah. Oh. Like, why? How can the, the issue of sex being taboo change? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. thank you. See, I think that there are lots of sectors in our society where it isn't taboo anymore, including in the mainline Protestant churches, where I think they made a lot of shifts, you know, some time ago. At least it's less taboo. So I do think that it's in probably churches, you know, like this one, having these conversations and trying to come up with a workable ethic. And, you know, I also want to say, it's, this is very private, too. You're, we're not all going to agree on what we want to teach our children, right? Um, but we might at least agree on some basic principles, you know, and a, a certain kind of foundation, ideas that we hope that they glean. And then, you know, I'm going to teach my children the way I see best. So are you. So are you. And that's okay. There, are, there are, will be a diversity of approaches always. But... You know, I, watching it even here become less taboo is very encouraging to me, frankly. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I'm going to close with one question that I, I think uh, leaves us at least on a commissioning or a hopeful note, which is um, what gives you hope mm. in the midst of all of this? What do you see that encourages you, that um, fills you with a sense of hopefulness about the future tied to that? What would you commission a body of people like this to mm. do to substantiate and move that hope forward into realization? Thank you. Gosh, you ask great questions. The thing that gives me the most hope, so I talk, I, I give a lot of talks and talk around the country and meet a lot of people from, you know, lots of different places. And the thing that gives me hope is that everyone out there, and I realize this is anecdotal because they're the ones coming to the talk, but... They want to know how to talk to people across these divides. They're profoundly concerned by our nation's polarization. And, I mean, I've talked to lots of conservatives, too, you know. And I have Trump voters in my family, in my extended, my extended family, and, you know, people who are profoundly concerned with the state of our nation. So I'm not just talking about the liberals here. And that gives me so much hope because I think there really is a will, maybe not everywhere, but to try and get out of our enclaves and talk. And so I think, you know, a, a pastor like you and your colleagues and a church like this can, can do a lot towards having those kinds of conversations across meals, you know, meeting with people from other congregations or having some kind of a discussion group. You know, that you have better ideas about that than I do. But that is what I see as being our nation's greatest need right now in many ways. And, um, and I think congregations can do a lot to, you know, make a difference there. Yeah, that's awesome. This was a f fantastic offering to that conversation, though. Just so, just, so to reciprocate the kind comments, I mean, to have this level of historical perspective and to have kind of this uh, reference to uh, the reason why we can now talk is like, oh, I see w a little bit of what happened and why you've mm -hmm. become what you've become. Um, one of the first things that hit me, um, you know, and I, I haven't studied this, so when I read your book, like the whole 
issue of the pain and the suffering that women were going through, um, which is what Margaret Sanger, Sanger was yes. attempting to address. They're not trying to push an organization to be liberal in, in that category. They're seeing a very real human need exactly. and wanting to address that. Um, and that no, nobody in our public discourse recognizes, references, or maybe even wants to recognize or reference kind of the inception of Planned Parenthood in that, in that way. And um, yes. I think it's having something like this is just so critical so that we can have productive conversations, the ones that you're mentioning, because otherwise we're just arguing from our own ignorance. So I'm ending on that note to say thank you so much for your offering, for coming to our church out all the way out here in California. You've, you've now been to Spark Church, so yes. congratulations. <laughs> <clears throat> Thank you, Kevin. That was wonderful. I appreciate that so much. I really do.